past couple of weeks is this notion that, that there's pain and there's hurt, there's grief, there's suffering in our lives and also in the story of God, um, also in the story of Christ and the cross. And, and so it's not strange that we walk through pain and suffering. It's not out of the ordinary that that becomes part of our lives. But the thing is in that is that that is not the end of the story, right? That, that's not the end because the end of the story because of the cross is life, it's wholeness, it's joy and peace. But, but pain and suffering and grief and all these hard things that we try to avoid are, are things that we naturally have to walk through. And, and in walking through that pain and suffering, we walk the way of the cross. But we have hope and we believe that God, and we use the phrase, God turns the story. In his time and in his place and in his way, he turns the story and reveals life and wholeness um, and healing. And so we're going we're gonna to revisit that concept um, a little bit later today. We, we prayed through that. We read scripture two weeks ago along those lines. And last week, Jay continued in that theme as he taught. And we're going to get back to that at the end of the sermon. But keep that, keep that on the shelf. Uh, we don't want to forget that. Today, as Jay said, we are going to go back to, uh, to James 3, and I think he keeps extending what year we're going to finish James. I think it was 2018, the last time he got up and said it, and today he said 2020. But we will, we will get there, and James is really good, and it's okay that we are laboring through, because, because James is a lot about labor. If you want to go to James 3, we're going to go to the beginning of that chapter. We've already hit the end of that chapter, but we want to read today James 3, Verses 1 through 12. And if you remember, Barry taught on this actually three or four weeks ago. So we have taught on this passage already. We're going to hear it again today, probably a little differently than we did before. Verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we stumble in many ways, And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Jesus, take these words, these words of life that are yours, that you wrote for us to hear, to pierce us, And God, let that happen. Take the words through your spirit deep into our spirit, God, and let us know you in that place, Lord. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. 
So it's obvious that the tongue is this dangerous thing. It actually kind of makes me not want to preach today, to be honest with you. Just reading that up here going, man, that, that's a warning. That's a really strong warning in scripture about just the power of the tongue. The power of the tongue to hurt, to destroy. And, and we know this. We've all experienced it. We've all got our stories of ways that we've hurt people by things that we've said that we wish we never would have said or things that people have said to us or about us that we heard about that, that hurt or hurt our kids, hurt our family. We know this passage to be true. We've all lived it in one way or another. Two just quick examples from my own life to take us into the passage. Um, I remember previous to working at Cornerstone. I worked at a ministry here in town at Youth for Christ, and one of my first days on the job, some of the staff took me out for lunch, and they paid for my lunch because I was the new guy, which was a really nice gesture. And we got back to our offices, and I pulled out my wallet. And I was like, "Hey, you know, I want to pay you back, you know." And one of the other staff members said, "Man, you have got to learn how to receive." And I was like, "Whoa." And it, and it, it kind of hurt, but like I knew he was right. And it was something, it was simple. It wasn't a big deal. He was loving me. It wasn't harsh. And I remember that. Like I remember those words. And that was, that was 10 years ago, almost 11 years ago that he said those words to me. And those words ring in my ears all the time. Man, you have got to learn to receive. And the land that we're on here in Lebanon, that's a hard thing for a lot of people to do, to receive, because we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we don't need to receive from anybody. And if we do, that's weak. And that's a lie. That's not true. And so this uh, coworker of mine taught me that lesson. And it was just a brief phrase. And I put my wallet back. And to this day, when people want to give me a gift, I think of his words and I find a way to say, thank you. Thank you. I'm honored. Thank you. And I just, it's, been amazing to be able to receive that from him. His words mattered to me. His tongue pierced me and influenced my life. Another example, um, years ago, I was, um, I was in a ministry setting with a group of people. We were, some of the people in that group were sharing their stories and testimony. And one of the individuals who shared just was having a really tough time kind of sharing and being coherent. And it was really tough to, 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 to follow what was going on. And um, the next day, somebody approached me who wasn't there in that ministry setting and said, hey, how did, how did last night go? You know, did you guys have a good time? And I, I started talking about this individual and how they were sharing and how it was just kind of weird and I didn't get it and blah, blah, blah. And then I saw this image out of the corner of my eye and I turned and they were sitting there and I didn't know they were there. And I... I immediately felt my whole body like catch on fire. Like the passage said, you know, it sets the course of your life on fire. I felt like this hot sensation go through my body and I was like, oh my goodness, what did I just do? And then I spent the next 10 minutes stumbling like a moron in apology and the next several days wallowing in shame and guilt and more apologies to this person. And yet, like, it didn't matter. Like, the damage had been done. I, I handled what was a, a struggle for them to, to speak some hard truths in just a flippant way. But, like, the damage had been done. And I still think about it. And they've forgiven me, and we've walked on. And, um, but, but I think about it occasionally and think, like, oh, and I, I have that feeling of, oh, 
man, I wish I wouldn't have opened my mouth. There would have been way better ways to love in that situation than the hurt that I brought with my tongue. So again, we all, we all have these, but those draw us into this, this passage. Um, be aware of this consistent biblical language that James reveals in this passage that, you know, things that are unlikely, things that are small, things that are on the margins, things that tend to not be seen by us can be very powerful and very profound, very transformative, and also very damaging. Um, this, is, this is biblical language throughout, from Genesis to Revelation, these things happen. We need to pay close attention to the small things, the quiet things, the marginalized things, because it's in these things that God tends to reveal a whole lot of who he is and a whole lot of what his heart is about and a whole lot about his kingdom, whether it's a mustard seed uh, being a picture for his kingdom or whether it's, you know, the least of these shall become the greatest of my people or, you know, all of those. We can go on and on about these different examples in scripture, but let's remember that biblical concept and the language that James picks up here that's throughout scripture, that those things matter and they are powerful, whether or not we choose to see them that way. So the tongue unleashes, has the potential to unleash these horrible things. It's a, a poison, it's a fire, it's an untamed evil. But where, where does that come from? Where does that come from? It doesn't just materialize on the tongue and fly out, out of our control. There's a, there's a place where that comes from. So if you want to go to Luke 6, verse 44. Luke 6, verse 44. Luke 6.44 says this, For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks there's very similar language in there, particularly in verse 44, that connects in with the passage in James. That This idea that these uh, natural creations produce a certain kind of fruit, and it doesn't produce another kind of fruit. And this is picked up on here in Luke as well. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this poison, this evil that flows from our tongue, has some connection directly to our heart and what overflows from our heart. So if there's goodness overflowing from our heart, good things come out of our mouth. And if there's a, a storage of a treasure of evil in our hearts, then evil comes out of our heart. Okay, that, that makes sense. I don't think this is a complicated concept for us to understand, but the question remains, well, how does it get into our heart? Like, what's the doorway into our heart then? If our heart is filling up with these things and the tongue is speaking it, Good or evil, where is it coming from? So back up even further into Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 verse 22 and following says this, The eye, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So the eye 
is a window into our body. And actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be talking about the eye today. Um, I'm going to be talking about the eye and how it's connected to the heart and how the heart is connected to the mouth. And there's, you could also say the ear is a doorway to the heart as well, but we're going to talk about the eye today. The ear would be another sermon for another day. Um, before we talk about that chain, I, I forgot to mention this picture. So, of course, let me probably put it all together now. I don't have Facebook, so this is the closest thing I get. So you're, this is like a private Facebook viewing. So here's my daughter. She is a small human on the smaller side of human beings. Um, the horse is on the larger side of animal beings. She rides horses. Um, the horse is big and strong. If you can see, I don't know if you can see it, the horse has pretty defined muscles in the horse's legs. Um, Savannah's, you know, not so much. Um, but she's holding on to the reins, and the reins are connected to the bit, this little bit in the horse's mouth. And, and she, she shows that horse who's boss. Like when she's in there, I mean, she's like, come on, and she yanks that, the reins, and she steers that bit, and the horse goes where she wants it to, just like the passage says. Thing is, if it's not right, it doesn't go where she says it should go. That, that bit is small. Savannah is small. Those reins are not super strong. But together, she controls that beast and lets it know where to go. So the eye, right? It starts at the eye. What are we looking at? What do we see? What do we see? How are we interpreting what we see? Where does that deposit go after we see something? It goes to our heart, right? This intimate place deep within us that God created, not necessarily our physical heart, but this place within us that resonates with who we are as the ones created in God's image. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now it's interesting in this chain that the eye, the beginning of this chain, is very interesting. In, uh, in James, the Greek, and I don't want to get too deep into it, but there's Various translations of what, when it talks about a good eye, and we're in Matthew 6.22 now. If your eye is good, then your body is filled with light, right? So what, what does it mean for an eye to be good? Well, various translations say different things. Healthy, a healthy eye. Well, we get that, healthy, okay. The eye's doing what it should do. It's, it's performing the functions that God created our eyes to perform. Um, good eye, that's what the, many of your translations probably say. A whole eye. Like it's whole. It's not, it's not double-minded. If I can use another body reference there, it's not double-minded. If you think back to the eye, the heart, and the mouth, all of the passages that I shared, each passage about each one of those body parts, they all express this tendency for those body parts to be double-minded. Right? The eye, it says it can, it can be good or bad. The heart can overflow with, with a good treasure or with evil. The mouth can curse or it can bless. And so all of these things have this tendency to go either way, just really radically and radically transform the space in which we live, depending on which way those things go, right? They're, they're double-minded, these body parts are. But a whole eye, it's, it's complete. It's what it should be. Um, a single eye, a single eye, it's not, again, it's not divided. You can kind of see these definitions overlapping. A single eye, it's not looking over here and then also looking over here, right? It's not looking at the good over here and saying, boy, I really, I really want the bad. No, it's, it's single. It's singly focused. And finally, some translations talk about the eye 
in Matthew 6 being generous. In other words, when I look at something, am I seeing the fullness of who God is and what I'm looking at? If I'm seeing a person, am I judging a particular slice of their life and what I see at that moment saying, bad person, because they're doing this? Or am I able to see how God sees generously with grace? So all of these words fit into what Matthew 6 is talking about. Good is what the translation says in many, in many of your Bibles, but there's a depth to that that has all these meanings to it. And when it says a bad eye, bad or evil or stingy, and stingy is interesting because that's the opposite of generous. So if I look at somebody with a bad eye or a stingy eye, it means I'm just kind of looking at them like this. I'm just going to look at part of Steph's life and I'm going to judge based on that. I'm going to see her like that and not the fullness of who God made her to be. I'm going to be stingy with what I see. I don't want to know the whole story because if I know the whole story, I might hear things that might change the way I thought and I'd prefer to sit in the seat of judgment than to see how God wants us to see. So, the eye is the doorway. It can be bad or good and let light or darkness in. That fills our heart and our heart overflows with something and whatever our, that something is that our heart overflows with, the mouth speaks. It's almost like we can't control it. Just whatever overflows from the heart, the mouth speaks. And we've all been there. We've all been in those situations, having conversations with a friend or a family member, a spouse, a parent, where we just can't stop talking about that person over there. It just overflows. We feel so much hatred or so much animosity or so much lack of forgiveness in our heart that it just flows out of our mouth all the time, and we can't even think about what it would be like to speak kindly about that person unless they're there in front of us and we act like, you know, we're seeing them with a hole or a single eye, but, but we're not. We're not. The gospel, the transforming gospel, is not double-minded like these body parts are. The whole gospel is pure. It's righteous. But we often communicate this messed up gospel because by the time we take something in through our eyes, it goes in our heart and overflows and comes out of our mouth, the gospel is just twisted. The purity is lost. The main application of our teaching this morning is going to be around the city of Lebanon. And it's a, something you know you guys hear me talk about all the time, um, the city of Lebanon. And it's a place that my heart deeply, deeply connects to. And I know it's a place that many of your heart deeply connect to. And corporately, our heart connects to the city of Lebanon. Um, but we also have these interesting experiences of the city. Like when we drive through the city, we see certain things. And when we see certain things in a broken, impoverished land— we feel certain things based on what we see. And then based on what we feel in our heart, we speak about those things. And the question is, what kind of eye are we looking at the city of Lebanon with that's ultimately affecting the words that we speak? And so we're going to do an exercise together. So we're going to get in groups. And I know you're all internally going, oh, groups, oh, I have to get together with three or four people. Yeah, you do. I know, right? Just do it. All right? It's going to be good. Trust me. Just think well of one another. Um, I know you just like to sit there and receive, but we're going to receive from each other this morning. So get in groups of, of three or five around you, and, um, and, and, and if somebody around you don't know, even better, even better. And don't look at them and say, 
I don't want to be in a group with them and then think badly of them and then speak badly of them, okay? Don't do that because that would kill this whole thing. So get together, take 10 seconds to do that, and then I'm going to give you instructions. All right, so you're going to want to be able to look at each other, but you're also going to be able to turn to look at the screen. I'm going to show you some images up on the screen. I'm going to show you some images that are reflective of the city of Lebanon. In fact, there's going to be four sets of pictures that you're going to see. The first picture in each set of four was taken um, by me or somebody at Cornerstone or somebody who loves Cornerstone, and it's actually from our community here in Lebanon, the community where Cornerstone lives and exists. Um, the second picture is going to be uh, a picture that like, I found somewhere like on the internet or something. So it's, these are not people that I know in the, in the second picture of each set. But I want you to... Now, these are... This is an example, okay? So yes, I am setting you up for something, all right? I'm just saying that on the out front, right? These are, these are um, you might call them stereotypical pictures or maybe a snapshot of, of our city, things like that. It's, this is not like a fully contained, uh, foolproof exercise here, but, but go with it, okay? Let your eyes go into it, okay? See what you see, react to what you see and fill your heart with something, and then speak it, okay? See it, feel it in your heart, and then speak it. So I think you can, you can kind of see, at least if your reaction wasn't necessarily what I was going for, I think you see where I was leading you all together, that we can look at a set of pictures like this, and we can think about, you know, when we drive through Lebanon and see a single mom pushing her child in a stroller, or we presume it's a single mom, we just, that's what we see. I mean, we don't know. I mean, we live in the city on 10th Street, and when our kids were little, Courtney would push our kids in a stroller around the block. I wonder what people thought about her. Um, but we can say, geez, it's 10 o'clock at night, not in this picture, obviously. Why is that mom pushing that baby out in a stroller? Where's the dad? Oh, they're going to LCCM. They need food. Great. I wonder how much of my paycheck's gone to pay for their food. You know, things like that, perhaps. And then we see the other picture and go, oh, man, there's some moms. They're pushing their kids. They got their baby joggers. They're clearly exercising, having a good time. They're smiling. Their kids are perfectly well-behaved, um, which when we go into Walmart and see kids in strollers, we know that they're not perfectly well-behaved like our kids are, Right? So we see a guy going in the pen corner in the middle of the day. Well, why isn't he working? What's his deal? You know, now he's got a bike. He can't even afford a car. Jeez. I wonder why. Probably because he can't get a job. I wonder why he can't get a job. Probably has really bad social skills. I wonder why he's bad. So I don't care. He just needs to get a job. I'm probably paying for his whatever, right? Again, we're stereotyping this, okay? But the thing is, we don't know his story. We don't know what's going on there. I mean, the things that I just said about him may be true. I don't know. But do we know why they're true? Do we know why he's where he's at? When we see the Home Depot, hey, there's two guys going to the Home Depot. They're kind of wearing work clothes. I mean, a lot of us have probably walked in the Home Depot, and yeah, that's, they must have a home, or they must have a job, and they're contractors. So they're going in to get something. So very different feels, potentially different feel in these two pictures. What we see, what we feel, and what we speak are we generous with what we're seeing? Or are we stingy with what we're seeing? Are we seeing the way God sees? And then how does that lead to what comes out of our mouth? 
oh man, why should people who don't have much money spend it on satellite dishes and cable TV and 150 bucks a month? And that's not even, that's wrong. You know, you should spend it on your kid's lunch. Well, you don't know how much they make. We don't know how much they make. We don't, we don't know why they want to just drown themselves in media all day. We, we don't know what, what that drug of media helps them not think about whatever brokenness there is in their life. But again, we, we don't know the story. It's a, it's a snapshot. It's a picture. But, but it sparks something in us. Um, I was at somebody's house recently that had a theater set up. I, I went over to, uh, to pick up my son who was watching a football game there. I just thought they had a big screen TV. This isn't theirs. But I walked in and I was like, whoa. And my first response was, this is cool. This is really cool watching a football game on a screen that's the size of my living room wall. They had a screen that was 110 inches wide. Yeah. I I almost needed to go into the backyard to watch it because my eyes were having trouble focus, but I didn't care because it was so big, it just made it cool. It was just, wow, it was awesome. But if I wanted to, I could have just walked into the other room and they just had a 52-inch flat screen if I, if I wanted to see that, if it was too much for me with the 110. So, um, well, there's a hard worker, right? There's somebody who works hard and puts the theater system in, you know, or whatever. Or so we think. You know, again, it's a snapshot. Some of you might be going, oh, that's pure sin, that theater system. They are going to go to hell. I'm looking at somebody I love right now. No. Um, again, it's a snapshot. What do we think? What are we speaking about that? Um, man, what a horrible place to play, right? It's this dinky sliding board that, that's just horrible. It goes off the side of the porch. That's a, that's a liability. Do they have good homeowner's insurance? Chad, get on that. Trash bags, a broken vacuum cleaner in the background. I mean, this is just, I mean, this is not, like, all of that speaks to something. Many of us don't throw our broken vacuum cleaners on the front porch, right? That speaks to a value, right? This may appear more appealing. Safer, bigger, it's got the nice mulch laid down there. And again, this is, this is a contained exercise that we did, okay? I, I'm leading us to a place. When we experience the city of Lebanon, even as somebody who lives there and has lived there for 10 years and, you know, lives among this and sees this on a regular basis and my kids experience that at school and, and this is part of our lives. This is, this is our neighborhood, I can still say the things that I just said to you about those pictures from the city. I said them. I said them because I've thought them before. What does that do in the perspective of the kingdom when I use my mouth in that way? We think it's harmless. We think it's harmless because it's just words. James is... um, 
this book is about the second commandment, about loving your neighbor, loving your neighbor. And so therefore, it's about, it's about an, being active in something, being active in love, doing something, right? And he says in, in uh, James chapter 2, he says in verse 18, and this is a passage that we're also familiar with, some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. And then he goes on to give a couple powerful examples to finish out that chapter, which he didn't write as a chapter, by the way. He was just flowing. And then he jumps right into controlling the tongue. So he's talking about faith and works. And then he immediately transitions into another example, a work, the work of the tongue. James has to see the tongue and what it speaks and what comes out of it as a work that accomplishes things or damages things or builds things up. The tongue produces productivity on some level. And he spends a lot of time on it. It must matter a whole lot, according to James. This is an important work. If you have your bulletin, pull pull your bulletin out. The, on the back side at the top, there's a sermon thought, and I just wanted to read that. And like right now, I'm doing a work. Um, I'm talking to you. I am preaching. This is part of my job, yes, but it's a work. And hopefully I'm sowing good spiritual seed. But the warning is out there for teachers in the beginning of this passage to be, to be careful. But it's a work. Something is being accomplished spiritually among us today through my preaching. Sermon thought, the tongues of Adolf Hitler and Winston Churchill bear eloquent testimony to the dark and bright sides of the tongue's power. Hear the work that's being done in this. The Fuhrer, on one side of the channel, harangued a vast multitude with his hypnotic cadences. On the other side, the Prime Minister's brilliant measured utterances pulled a faltering nation together for its finest hour. With their words, with what flowed out of their hearts, and then through their mouth and off their tongue, changed thousands, millions of lives for good or for bad. But we need not look to the drama of nations to see the truth of James' words. Our own lives are evidence enough. Never doubt the power of the tiny tongue and never underestimate it. It's a strong work. Um, If right now I had the random thought, which is not random because I thought of this before this morning, that I needed to have the trash can behind the sound booth emptied. I could say, Rodney, could you please go empty the trash can behind the sound booth, right? My tongue is accomplishing a work. I mean, it's, it's that simple. That's a very neutral example. But James, again, gives us these examples that this tongue is prone to evil. It's prone to judgment. It's prone to poison. It's prone to set things on fire and to be set on fire itself. And we know this. The tongue is capable of shifting massive structures in our community. The, tr- the tongue is capable of creating life and transforming life. The tongue is capable of destroying life. I mean, think of God himself. God spoke life into existence. And if he wanted to right now, he could speak our life out of existence. The tongue is powerful. The tongue is powerful. At Cornerstone, we, uh, we receive teaching really well. 
um, you all devour good, solid Bible teaching. Hard teaching. The problem for us would be that if all we did was receive that teaching and say, boy, that's great, sonship. Yeah, I want to be more a son. I, I want to get together with my small group and talk about sonship and how we can all be better sons and daughters of the Most High God. That is good. That is good. But if that's all we ever do with the word that comes into us and it doesn't change our action, it doesn't lead to works and sits in this realm of kind of nebulous faith over here, then what good is it? If we don't become sons to our neighbor, if our neighbors don't know that we are sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, then what's the point of hearing great teaching at Cornerstone, talking about it with people, wrestling with it, if it doesn't actually do anything? Think about it this way, faith and works. You know, in fact, we think about faith and works this way. Like it's some battle to be fought, right? The grudge match of the ages. There's all kinds of things on the internet. I mean, I found a marquee picture on the internet that looked just like Cornerstone that said faith versus works. Justin thought it was Cornerstones. He said, when did you put those letters on our marquee? I said, this morning. And then I said, no, I'm, I'm lying to you. That's just a picture I found on the internet. Isn't that amazing? So you can find all these things. Faith versus works. Faith beats up works. Works beats up faith. Bam. No, that is not what James says. These things together, like read chapter two. These things flow together. If we're standing on the edge of a cliff and somebody tells us there's a net below, somebody that we trust a whole lot, and they're like, jump off this cliff. There's a net below. You can't see it. It's so far down, you cannot see it. But jump. And you go, I totally trust you. I'll jump. Okay, jump. No, I don't need to. I, I believe you that there's a net down there. No, you don't, because if you believe me, you would jump. That's how I know that you believe me. Well, I'm not going to jump. I mean, what if, what if something happened to the net since you put it there? And I can't see the net anyway. Then you don't have faith. You don't believe me. And maybe that's a little strong, and maybe that's a little harsh. Do you, do you remember that image from uh, Indiana Jones and the whatever? one of those Indiana Jones movies where he's like at this big chasm and last crusade and he, he's thinking there has to be a path there but he can't see it so he picks up some dust and he throws it out and like there's like this thing that makes it look like he can see that there's a path there but it still looks like it blends in with all the rock below it and it still freaks him out but he takes the step and then he walks across and conquers whatever he needs to conquer at that point. Same thing. Like faith really isn't faith until you take a step until you actually do something, right? So if we say, we love the city of Lebanon. Lebanon is great. God loves Lebanon. Cool. Go talk to that person that looks different than you because you feel it. But I can't do that. I can't. I can't do that. They're different than me. Look at, look at how they live. I I might push the baby jogger and look at them walking across the street to Elsie. That's just different. There's too many differences there. No, there's not. That is, that's a stingy eye. And that's not faith. That's not seeing how God sees this community. Is this community broken and hurting? Yes, it is. We all know that. It is broken and hurting. And so are you. And so are you. It's just that a lot of us have ways of hiding our brokenness and hurtedness because we have resources that allow us to make it look pretty, I guess is the best way to say it. But we're broken and hurting. So when we drive through the city of Lebanon and we see, 
we see the mom pushing the baby stroller, and we, we have these thoughts go through our head about her and her life. And it's a stingy thought, right? It's a stingy thought. It's not generous. And then we go, oh, no, no, no. I need to see how God sees. In James 1, 5, um, earlier in the chapter, and we covered this, I don't know, like 10 years ago when we started the book of James, It says our God is a generous giving God. He's a generous God. And that same form of that word generous that's used to describe God is used to describe the good eye, the generous eye, right? Same, same word, different form of that word. Same root. And then what are we speaking? When we speak, we create a work. We hear all the time, all of us do, things about this broken, messed up city. Open up the newspaper, read the editorials in there about the city of Lebanon. They're horrible words sometimes about our city and how messed up it is and how people do this and people do that and why can't they do this and why can't they do that. Look at the front page this week. There was a shooting on 9th Street. Two people died. If you read that, what did you think? What did you speak about the city? Even if the words weren't out loud, what, did, what, what were those words that were on the tip of your tongue? What was it? We can do groundwork transformation in our community by seeing how God sees and filling our heart with that. Seeing generously. There is a story there. There is a story there. There is a story here. What happens when my story connects with that story? And we actually find out that, you know, we're not so different after all, that we both have hurt and pain. We're both suffering. I might have some more resources, but I feel what you feel, and you feel what I feel. We start speaking different. And when we start speaking different, we start doing other things different. We start doing things with our hands and with our feet that are different than what we would have done before. Because transformation is happening. Because we're speaking what we need to speak. Um, there's many churches throughout history, you know, this grudge match thing. Um, many churches have done very well with faith, or so-called faith. Good teaching, good understanding of who God is, what he means, who he is to me, my personal Lord and Savior, he died for me on the cross, saved me from my sins, good stuff. Other churches have kind of, eh, put that off to the side and said, we're gonna do a bunch of good works. We're going to love our community. We're going, to be, we're going to be a James kind of people. Second commandment kind of people. But so few cases in the history of God's church have we been able to combine those things together in the way that James lays it out for us. So few. And the world is just starving. Our community is starving for a body of believers that get this that get faith and works. They don't say that. I don't talk to my neighbor and say, boy, if only if the church would really get faith and works. No, it's just people know it because they're made in God's image and they know what the church is supposed to be. And Cornerstone, we have, we're, we're primed for this, to be this kind of place. We are primed for this, to be the kind of church where faith, because we have great teachers here. Oh my goodness, you, we have wonderful teachers and you guys are wonderful receivers. And to be able to have that be what overflows from our heart, to be that what we speak, to not just hear teaching on sonship and Christ's glory, but to speak sonship and to live sonship and Christ's glory, what a work that is. 
What a transformational work that is that our community is just so hungry for. They're just so hungry for it. I was speaking with a, a young woman, this is probably a couple years ago, and she grew up, um, and she, she was a professional businesswoman and was very successful at what she did and had these stereotypes of the city about, um, particularly related to, um, you know, just issues surrounding poverty. But God had done these things in her life and through no necessarily choice of her own, ended up living in the city of Lebanon and then ended up having this mom live with her who had two kids whose life was falling apart. And it was this like, it just totally destroyed her world in this really good way. And she learned so much from this, this other mom. Like she just she learned so much and she began to develop this heart of love and we were talking one day and she said to me, you know, she's like, I overheard these people talking the other day about people on welfare. And they were just saying all these horrible things about people on welfare. And she said, I got so mad inside because I know a mom who's on welfare and I know her story. And they were like just talking about her, even though they didn't say her name, it was like they were talking about her because I, I felt it. And I got so mad because I know that girl and I love that girl. And here these people were just talking, using their words as a weapon judgmentally towards people on welfare. And she said, I realized at the moment, like God had changed me. He had changed me because I used to be that. I used to be the one who talked like that, who didn't know the story on the other end of it, who saw something, felt something, and spoke it. And it was not good. And now I see something and I feel something towards this other person who lives in my own home. And I speak something different about her. And when I hear people speak negatively of that, oh, it just is like a fire inside of me. And it was just this beautiful picture of how God does that, like how words matter. Um, just bringing things full circle now. We talked two weeks ago, like I said at the outset today, about God turning the story. Like, we look at our community, and yes, it is broken. There are so many things that we can point to that it's broken in. The houses are broken. Relationships are broken. Um, the educational system is, is broken. Um, marriages are broken. Parenting is broken. It's just to a greater degree than maybe in some other places. But that's not the end of the story, right? Like God turns the story. And he says, I want you to be part of that. Like God brings us in the creative process. He brings us into the transformative process with him. So he says, yes, yes, it's right. Like this world is broken. There's a lot of pain in this community. Walk out of our church and look up and walk around the block when you leave and you'll see pain and brokenness. It'll be pretty evident to you in a lot of ways. Just the trash blowing on the street. Yes, there's pain and brokenness. But God says, I turn that story too. I turn that story. Look at my word. Look at my story. Look at the death, the pain, the suffering. But look at the resurrection, the hope, the life, and the wholeness. Look at it. I turn this story. Do you want to be part of it with me? Because you can. Because we can walk it together. We can walk, yeah, but you got to walk through the pain and suffering. But he turns the story. And we can be a part of that because that's where God is glorified. That's where we see his glory. Go to Zechariah. Um, chapter 8, verse 4 to 6. Team, you can come on up for the last song. Zechariah 8. <clears throat> and uh, the, the prophet speaks this to Jerusalem. 
This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Once again, old men and women will walk Jerusalem streets with their canes and will sit together in the city squares. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls at play. The streets will be filled with boys and girls at play. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. All this may seem impossible to you now, a small remnant of God's people. But is it impossible for me, says the Lord of heaven's armies? And of course, the implied answer there is what? No. It's not impossible for him. This is the kind of storyline that God writes. The key phrase, once again. Yep, it was bad. And the time before that, it was good. It's going to get good again. God turns the story. So let's engage that. Let's let our faith allow us to see what God sees so that our heart is filled with what God's heart is filled with so that when we speak, we do a good, good transformative work for the city of Lebanon. Thank you, God, for your rescue of us and our judgments, of us and our fallenness, of us in our, um, in our deep, deep need for you. You are, are always there, even in places where we've come to you for help like a million times before and then run back to our own ways or our own strength. God, give us eyes to see like you see. Give us a heart that feels like you feel. and Give us a mouth that speaks your words. God, open us to what it means to walk in you in, in all ways, in all situations, be it here in our city, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, with our friendships, when we're by ourselves. God, thank you for the rescue that you give us in Christ in all things. And may the words that we continually fall back on time and time again be, God, I I need you. God, come, change me, save me, rescue me. We call on you, Father. Thank you for all that you are. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. We Belong to Each Other by Bob Lupton. Gray hair bushing out beneath her knit cap, she appeared to be in her late 50s. With one hand, she tightly held a large purse that looked like a shopping bag. With the other, she knocked persistently on the church door. She was visible through the security glass as the pastor and I walked down the hall, our early morning meeting on the homeless still fresh on our minds. The pastor greeted her with, much, with as much compassion as possible for a busy urban leader running late for his next meeting. Are you here for clothes? No, no, the woman interrupted him before she finished a sentence. Her countenance fell. I'm here to help sort clothes. But the damage was already done. The spirit that moved this woman to spend her morning energy helping to clothe others was wounded. A simple error, understandable, unwitting, irreversible. It is more blessed to give than to receive, said Jesus. But for this woman, the blessedness of rising early to give to others was marred by her identification as a recipient. Her face reflected the hurt of lost self-esteem. Receiving is a humbling matter. It implies neediness. It categorizes one as being worse off than the giver. Perhaps this is why we tend to reserve for ourselves more than the blessed position. In recent months, I have been troubled by the lack of authentic reconciliation between the haves and have-nots in our inner-city congregation. 
The woman in the knit cap may be showing me where our difficulty lies. I came to the city to serve those in need. I have resources and abilities to clothe the ill-clad, feed the hungry, shelter the homeless. These are good works that our Lord requires of us. And there is a blessedness in this kind of giving. But there is also power that allows me to retain control. My position as a helper protects me from the humiliation of appearing to need help. Even more sobering, I condemn those I help to the permanent role of recipient. When my goal is to change people, I subtly communicate, something is wrong with you. I am okay. You are ignorant. I am enlightened. You are wrong. I am right. If our relationship is defined as healer to patient, I must remain strong, and you must remain sick for our interaction to continue. People don't go to doctors when they are well. The process of curing, then, cannot serve long as the basis for for a relationship that is life-producing for both parties. Small wonder that we who have come to the city to save the poor find it difficult to enter into true community with those we think needy. It takes every one of us to make his body complete, for we each have a different work to do. So we belong to each other, and each needs all the others. I need the poor? For what? The question exposes my blindness. I see them as weak ones to be rescued, not as bearers of the treasures of the kingdom. The dominance of my giving overshadows and stifles the rich endowments the Creator has invested in those I consider destitute. I overlook what our Lord saw clearly when he proclaimed the poor to be especially blessed, because theirs is the kingdom of God. I selectively ignore the truth that moneyed, empowered, and learned ones enter his kingdom with enormous difficulty. The community into which Christ invites us is one of interdependence. We are called to mutual sharing and the discovery of gifts Christ has concealed in the unlikeliest among us. And to those who consider themselves leaders, our Lord offers humility. The salvation of the proud that comes from learning to receive from the least, who are the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus, we pray that as we leave here today, that we would see as you see, that we would fill our hearts with the things that fill your heart, and that we would speak creatively, God, as you spoke creatively our world into being. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.